I want to read this psalm and then I want to use it as a launching pad, which is a bit different from how text, I'll, I'll pretty much share the text and everything I'm going to share, it, it comes from that text, but I'm going to use Psalm 23 this morning into our exhortation for today. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. I, I'm just trying to give Sarah some time as she translates to get that text because I didn't have this in my notes. But in the New King James Version, Psalm 23 sounds something like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. Your rod and your staff, they bring me comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Let me repeat that one more time. David David says, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm is commonly referred to as the Lord is my shepherd psalm. It's a reflection of a relationship that David recognizes to Jehovah God. This is just an exhortation to the masses, even though for many exhortation, it is a personal views his Lord and Master. What's interesting about this psalm is that Many historians really don't know at what stage of life David was in when he wrote this particular. David would highlight via something stated in the psalm concerning a particular period in his life. For example, when he was on the run from Saul or when it is he would have sinned the sin with Bathsheba. But this is not a psalm that gives any clear indication as to what stage of life David was in when he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And so I want us to think about this psalm, not necessarily having an age, but representing every single stage of 
David's life. If he was a young man and a naive to life, he is concluding at a very young age, never having yet maybe experienced heartbreak, never having yet experienced the trauma of relationship. He, 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 he says and he describes in a youthful stage, if in fact he wrote this as a young man, that the Lord was in fact his shepherd. Perhaps if he would have lived a little bit and uh, he would have experienced some trauma, he is a few years, he is concluding still in the midst of where he is that the Lord is his shepherd. But light of his life, looking back at everything he has experienced and everything that he has gone through, still his conclusion would remain the same, that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall lack or want for nothing. I want us to appreciate from the standpoint of this text that David, as he makes his way down to verse number six, he utters the words, surely goodness and mercy. equates and he parallels two things together that would follow him, that would walk beside him, that will walk ahead of him, that will encompass his journey. He, he equates these two things as goodness and mercy. Not only is he saying the mercy of God follows him, but he is also saying the goodness of God follows him as well. And as much as he has gone through some things, he says the goodness of God still follows me. And as much as he may have done some things in life, he says the mercy of God follows me. He recognizes that God's goodness is coupled with his mercy so that he could have an ever-existing relationship with Jehovah God. I'm saying that to say this because I really want to go off of the heels of our mental health workshop. The theme for the mental health workshop on yesterday was better together, finding hope and healing. Better together, finding hope and healing. I, I, I grew up hearing the statement and the phrase, some things just go better together. You could eat jam, strawberry jam, or guava jam all you want with bread, but I, I, I've heard from my kids that, 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 that guava jam is better with bread and peanut butter. You, you, you could eat that when you put a tender juicy piece of meat in there God help me in here and, and you you get a piece of a, a, a bacon and you press it on top of that 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 meat and you get a nice fresh piece of lettuce and maybe I, I, I said lettuce and some of you watching me funny uh, you, you get some tomatoes or some tomatoes depending on your tongue and you put it on there and I don't know what your preference might be you might just drizzle some ketchup or you might use some barbecue sauce I don't know what it is but we recognize that some things just go better together. When, when God was looking down after his creation, he recognized after creating Adam that, that, that he created a male and a female to every creature, but he had yet to create a female for Adam. And he looked down and he said, Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. I'm just trying to Assuredly, as we uh, live this life, certainly we go through times in life when things are joyous and things are good. But God wants to reveal to us that in as much as we could go through life and life might be good, life is better lived in relationship and communion with God Almighty. Some things are just better together. 
And as we think of the theme, finding hope and healing better together, I want us to appreciate that it, it really embraces a thought process that says God doesn't just want your spirit, he wants all of you. God doesn't just want to save you from your sin, but he wants to heal all of you as a human being. He wants your trauma. He wants your distress. He wants your brokenness. He wants every single aspect of you to be made whole. So the concept of finding hope and healing is one that embraces the true balance of human existence. And so I want us to see at least four things. I really want to do this really quickly. I want us to see four things as to why it's so important for us to have not only hope, but healing. And the reason why I believe scripture is so, is so clear in helping us to see why it's so important to have not only hope, but healing as well, is because all of us carry certain weights on our shoulders at any given point in time. At one point in time, some of us might be carrying heartbreak. At another point in time, some of us might be carrying certain trauma. At another point in time, some of us might be carrying frustration. At another point in time, some of us might be carrying doubt. We all carry some type of weight at any given point in times in our lives. How we navigate those weights, however, becomes important to our relationship in our walk with Jesus Christ. So I want to look at four individuals really quickly. I want to look at four individuals that Bible shares with us, that scripture shares with us, that helps us to recognize that God is concerned not only with the soul, but he is concerned with the entire existence of the human being as well. Sometimes we recognize that all of us carry the weight of guilt and the shame of sin. I want to bring your attention into the book of Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 through 10. And as I bring your attention into Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 through 10, I want to share this text with you. And I want to say some things in relation to David himself. And hopefully make some necessary application to us before moving on to the second point. Number, number one, I want us to see that we do carry a weight more often than not sometimes of guilt and the shame of sin. As David records this psalm from verse number one of Psalms chapter 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me he says from my sins for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight watch this that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge behold i was brought mother conceive me behold you desire truth in my inward parts and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom purge me he says with hyssop 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. And blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. If the historians are true, if the recorders are true that David is penning this psalm after he would have sinned with Bathsheba, I want you to note the severity and the weight that David is feeling even after he had the encounter with the prophet. Even after the prophet had made known to him his sin and, and that he had to repent of the sin that he would have done in, in, in taking Bathsheba to wife, here is, is David and in this psalm, in this prayer, possibly even in this song, as he is penning these words, he is praying to God to not only blot out the sin, but he is praying to God to also blot out the guilt. He is, he is praying to God. Notice the terminology, terminology he uses. He is praying to God to heal as if God had broken his physical bones. David is so bogged down by the weight of sin and the guilt and the shame of what he would have done that he, he feels like a man who has been broken as if he had been, had been in a serious car wreck. And he is praying to God. He says, listen, I, I, I know I'm acknowledging my transgressions and my sin, he records, is ever before me. David is at a point in his life where he's replaying this sin over and over and over and over and over and over. Have you ever been in a place, maybe you have done some things in your life, you are 10, 15, 20 years removed, but you still hold on to the fact of the guilt that has, that has taken root in your heart and taken root root in your mind that even though it's over and over and over and over and over again if you haven't been there let me tell you guilt will will will, will grab you and, and it will isolate you and it will place you before the screen and it will just replay that one thing over and over and over. And the only thing that you conclude is, God, I am not worthy to even be called your son. The only thing that you would conclude is, I'm not worthy to even be called one of your children. The only thing you would conclude is that I am no good. But if you continue listening to the voice of guilt and shame and not the voice of Because in as much as we all sin, here is what God allows us to know. In as much as we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, we do have a gift of God and a gift from God that is Jesus Christ our Savior. And many of us in our pursuit to strive to be righteous, we are striving to pursue, pursue righteousness off of our own strength, not recognizing that you and I could never be righteous as good as we strive to be. We can never truly be holy simply by us thinking that all we need to do is abstain from certain things and all we need to do certain things and all of a sudden that makes us holy and that makes us righteous. When we recognize that sin is always present, when we recognize according to Paul in Romans chapter number 7, even the things that I don't desire and I don't want to do, those are the things that I often find myself doing. You ever find yourself sinning simply because it's there sometimes for you to do? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, do you not recognize?
things that we know that we ought not to do, that is classed as sin. But sometimes, even the scripture dictates that sin as well. So as he looks around, he's brokenhearted. As he looks around, he's recognizing, listen, I was born and I was molded, I was shaped in sin and iniquity. What is he saying? Is he saying that I was born a sinner? No, no that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, when I look at the reality of sin and where sin is ever present with me, I, I was birthed into an environment. I was birthed into a world that, that sin was ever present. So in other words, here is what, what, what David was saying without actually saying. In other words, it was only a matter of time before I consciously engage in sinful acts, thoughts, and deeds. It's only a matter of time. But in as much as it's only a matter of time, he gets to a place where he still recognizes, ah, I don't want to fall prey to giving up or giving into a life or a heart of sin. I want to walk a godly life. Anybody here? I don't know because I, I asked a question and I didn't get a response. And, and, and you know what I'm saying? You, 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 you want to do good. You want to live right. You, you know who God is. You know what you're supposed to be doing. But, but, but this thing that I'm, I'm a part of, it feels so good. There's a reason why people shock up. There's a reason why people get involved in, 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 in extracurricular activities when they're not married. There, there, there is a reason why it is we still are hung up on the things sometimes that we are hung up that we know that we're not supposed to be doing because in as much as sin is dark, sometimes the truth is sin feels sweet in the moment. David, though he was caught up in a moment, it brought along some consequences with it. And not only did it affect him, but it affected others as well. We think oftentimes that our sin is only me and me alone. And even though he prays against you and you alone have I sinned, I want us to understand that he recognizes that his sin didn't only affect him, it affected other people as well. So sometimes we could delude ourselves into thinking that connected, our sin will affect the relationships that we have ongoing with other people. Unless you didn't know our sin will affect our witness to other people as well. So the reason why it becomes so important for us to not only find hope in Jesus Christ, but truly also find healing is because we recognize that there is a guilt that we need, a, a, a weight of guilt and shame that we need to learn to overcome every now and then because sometimes it's hard for us to overcome not just the doing of the sin because we could end doing a particular deed, but sometimes it's the, it's, it's the guilt, the residual guilt that is still festering in the heart that keeps us from going forward. So he says, number one, the reason why I want you to appreciate this is because I need for you to see that there is a weight of guilt and shame and the shame of sin that hope and healing helps you to overcome. Watch this as we move on. Number two, there is a weight of grief sometimes and loss that us as human beings have to deal with. In the book of John chapter number 11, here is Mary and Martha, their brother, Lazarus would have just died. And I don't have times because I was going to read this. I, I'm encouraging you to read this if you haven't read this. But the, the scripture tells us that they send word to Jesus that the one whom you love, you know, you know, you know who you love, Jesus, the, the one whom you love, he is, he is sick nigh unto death. We need you to come. 
Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm going to wait a little bit. And in the process of time, Lazarus dies. Then Jesus turns his gaze to, to go to Bethany. And as he begins his journey, he, the scripture tells us he's about two miles out. And, and when Martha hears that Jesus is on his way, we don't know how far out he was or what, but word went that Jesus would have left where he was and started his journey to Bethany. Somebody had to run who knew Jesus was leaving Jerusalem. Somebody had to run from where Jesus was to where Mary and Martha were in Bethany and to let Martha know. And when Martha heard, Martha took off running to Jesus. Watch this. And as you look at the text, the text would tell us that Martha was the first to engage Jesus on his way to where they were. It is at this point in time that, that, that Jesus would be uttering to Martha and he would utter those famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. But I need for you to recognize that in as much as he says that to Martha, Martha now runs back home to tell Mary, listen, the Savior is coming. When Mary hears the Savior is coming, Martha says to Mary, he calleth for you. She gets up immediately out of her grief and she begins to make her way to where Jesus was. It was, it was at this point that, that she would say to Jesus, it was Mary, not Martha, who said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. This is a young lady who was in grief and you would tend to believe that two sisters, they would have lost their brother, they lost the same person, uh, they would have grieve, grie been grieving the exact same way. We learned yesterday according to Abigail's, uh, Abigail's presentation that you could be experiencing the exact same thing but your response will not be the exact same response. And so even though yes they all lost, they both lost a sibling, Martha had enough strength to initially first go to engage Jesus, whereas Mary was still so heartbroken that she didn't have the capacity to move. And when Martha encountered Jesus, she goes back to her sister Mary, who was in a deeper state of grief, to say, listen, the master is coming and he called it for you. It's at that point that she gets up. And when she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, I need for you to see the frustration. I need for you to hear the grief. I need for you to see the pain because this is, this is, I know we read this sometimes where, Lord, if you had been here, you know, or, or, you know your, your, your friend Lazarus would not, no, 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 no. If you were here, I want you to read this in a judging tone. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. In other words, where were you? Both of them heard that Jesus was coming. But Martha was the first to take off. Mary is there and she is, in, she is in the room with a bunch of Jews around her because they are trying to console this sister because apparently she is inconsolable. And she's crying her eyes out, not telling what's going on in her mind, but we get a little glimpse of it because when she encounters Jesus, the first thing she says to him is, why weren't you here? He loved you. And I, I know she didn't say this, but I'm, I'm putting this in, right? So you could put this on me. He loved you. And, and, and in his time of need, where were you? You know how much he cared for you. You know how much he spoke of you. You, you know the type of person he was. Where, where were you? You healed so many people when people came to you. 
Every single person with their sickness, every single person with their disease, you, you have seen you feed multitudes, Jesus. And, 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 and all we needed for you at this moment was to come. And you didn't even have to come. You could have sent the same messenger we sent. All you had to do was speak the word. And our brother wouldn't have passed away. But there is a sense of grief. There is a sense of pain that, that Mary and Martha is going through that all of us have to experience. And I believe the Holy Spirit allows us to get a glimpse into this so that we could learn how to navigate times of pain and grief. Grief is a weight that if you are not careful, you could miss the beauty of the promise, but also you could miss the beauty of the present. Because when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, here is Martha thinking, yes, Lord, we know that there will be a resurrection to come. She, she missed, she is thinking futuristically, but she is missing the present. And sometimes grief could weigh us down so much that it obscures our vision to see what God is doing right now and what he can do for us in the future. That's the weight of grief. That's the pain of grief. That's the worry of grief. That's the fear. That's the effect of grief. Anybody here ever lost someone? Lost someone really close to you? Uh, would you be open and honest enough to say that maybe you, you, you struggled? Why did they have to be taken when there are so many other people in this world that could have been taken? They were the good ones. Why did they have to go? here this would not have happened and so when Jesus gets to the tomb I'm, I'm almost when Jesus gets to the tomb and he, they brought him to the tomb and he tells them roll the stone away but you fail to realize who is in your presence you're looking at the situation from physical eyes. I need for you to look at this situation from a spiritual one. You think this situation is too far gone. You think Lazarus is too far gone. You think your grief and your situation is too far gone. But understand who is in your presence. And you know that famous statement, right? That, that two-word, shortest verse in the Bible type deal, Jesus wept. You've heard all kind of people talk about uh, what that wep weeping would have meant and all. I, I want to suggest, I want to add one more. I'm not going to debunk what anyone has said and what anybody has preached concerning Jesus weeping. I want to add one more possibility to you. When of someone that's close to you, it doesn't matter how many times you experience death, it is as if you're experiencing grief for the very first time. So all your life, all our lives, we've been experiencing death. All of us, from, from, from since we were very young, uh, a cousin passed away or a neighbor passed away or a family member. All of us have been experiencing death pretty much all of our lives. And every single time, it's it brings tears to our eyes. We're inconsolable. We, we could barely talk, right? Because that's what grief does. Notice, when Jesus gets to the tomb, the scripture tells us Jesus wept. Here's what I want to suggest to us. Jesus is recalling in mind 
the pain that he felt another time before. What other time did Jesus would have experienced pain, Brother Morgan? I'm glad you asked. John doesn't tell us what Luke and Matthew records or even Mark records. According to Matthew's account, prior to Jesus feeding the multitude and walking on water, he would have lost his close friend, John the Baptist. So the first time, if you think about it along these lines, the first time Jesus encountered, even though he was in the flesh, God in the flesh, the first time he encountered that type of grief was at the loss of John the Baptist. And in the midst of grief, he walks on the water. In the midst of grief, he feeds the multitude. In the midst of grief, he still has to push on in his purpose, even though he is going through his pain. But now he has come to a next opportunity, a next time in his life and existence where he comes face to face again with the reality of death. God coming in the flesh. Here is God experiencing with his eyes for the first time in existence what death does to human beings. In the heavenly realm, he couldn't feel the pain in a legitimate way that he does when he is manifested in the flesh. So now being human, a human being, now being in the flesh, he understands what it means to grieve. He understands the pain, the, 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 the ball that wells up in your throat at, at, at the, the, the word and at the sight of the fact that here is the, the, the last burial place of my good friend. So he is recalling in mind the pain that he felt when he lost John. And now he's in the presence of the tomb, the final burial place of Lazarus. Even though he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but I'm, I'm trying to help you to see. Even though that Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he understood the effects of death. And many of us, even though that we know there's going to come a time when death will be no more, the truth is we still are able to see the effects of death. The death of a loved one in a household will rock a family so much that a family will never be the same no more. And how the family navigates that loss will determine if that family stays together and continues and, and carries the legacy further or if that family tears apart, never to be understood or seen the way that the family was seen when the family member was alive. Because death has the capacity to do that. But Jesus says, I want you to understand and appreciate Especially when it comes to grief, mourning and loss is a process. And we think they are two instantaneous things that work as miracles. What Jesus is trying to show through his, his, his ministry is sometimes hope is there and it's present, but healing takes time. You don't just overcome trauma simply because you have been baptized into Jesus Christ. You don't simply overcome abuse because simply you have been baptized in to Jesus Christ. You don't simply overcome addiction because you were dipped in the water, the watery grave of baptism. Healing takes time. So even though God has given us a hope and even though his, his whole reality is to save us spiritually, the truth is healing is also there present for the man and woman of God. If we are not dealing...
stay truly, we would limit our spiritual maturity and ability to grow. I want to take this quote directly out from the book we've been studying. Uh, you know, the, the leadership team and myself have been studying the book. It's the emotionally healthy spirituality and the emotionally healthy disciple. And for all the works of Scazzaro, there is that you could never be spiritually mature if you are emotionally immature. Because if you claim to be spiritually mature, but emotionally immature, the truth is your maturity only matches your emotional maturity. So we have to learn to become better emotional beings so that we could truly match our spiritual growth and development. So the weight of grief and loss is why it is it's so important for us to learn the benefit of finding both hope and healing. Let me just do this last one and we'll close. As we think of the weight of walking in your purpose, Jesus presents for us a fine example of this. And I want to give you three instances. The entire purpose of Jesus is to come and to go to the cross to be a sacrifice for all of mankind. And that might be an oversimplification, but all of Jesus' purpose is wrapped up Not only is it wrapped up in him going to the cross, but when he dies, he has to be buried. And after he buries, he has to be resurrected. But the crux of this is that all of his purpose is wrapped up in what he's going to do on the cross. And as we think about walking in the weight of our purpose, there are some things that Jesus shows us on the cross that is even beneficial to us still present on today. I want to give you these three and I'll be done. Number one, as we think about some things that could have happened with Jesus on the cross or on his way to the cross, Jesus was fighting, fighting some urges that could have allowed him not to fulfill his purpose. Number one, he fought, he fought against falling under the worry or the anxiety. If it be possible, let this cup pass. He was fighting in his flesh the weight of the worry of going to the cross. But even under the weight, he would utter the words, not my will, but thy will be done. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm trying to show you how to combat the allure of falling to worry. Don't give in to it. Because you never fulfill your purpose. Number two, when he is actually on his way and he is on the journey to make his way up to Golgotha, the, the second thing he helps us to see is that he, he has to combat the weight of falling under the cross. There comes a point where Jesus, after he had been beaten, battered, and bruised, he is, he is carrying the cross, and he is so weak physically now that he falls to the ground, and he does not have the capacity to go to the top of the hill. But the cross was only his to carry. 
It could have only been him to be crucified on the cross so that, so that all of the sins of mankind could have been washed away. It, it really was his cross and his cross to bear, but notice he, he had to combat the, 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 the allure again of falling under the weight of the cross because here is what this represents. At the point of his falling, if he was arrogant and not humble enough to accept help, he would not have made it to where he was supposed to be. And so the process would tell us, the scripture would tell us, after he fell under the weight because he was so weak, here is one Simon of Cyrene who they compelled to take the cross and still, notice the text would tell you what, what he would have to walk behind Jesus. In other words, even though Jesus wasn't technically carrying the cross because of the symbolic nature of Simon of Cyrene walking behind Jesus, Jesus was still carrying the cross. But he had to be willing enough when he was weak, too weak, he had to be willing to accept help from somebody else. We need to get out of our own way sometimes because what we need to do, but we are so scared, full of pride and false pride, mind you, to even ask for help. But Jesus is saying not only do we need to fight against falling under the weight of worry of the cross, but we also need to fight against falling under the cross itself. And thirdly, as I close, as Jesus is sharing some life lessons on the cross, there came a point where after they beat him and he gets to the top of the mountain, and then they start In all kind of stuff, they're, they're berating him, they're, they're spitting at him, they're doing all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that Jesus has to fight, even while he's on the cross, is the wickedness of the work of men. Anybody here ever done you wickedness before? Anybody here, ever, anybody here has ever experienced somebody doing you harm and doing you wrong? Well, even on the cross, Jesus is helping us to see that I need for you to understand the beauty of hope and healing because you and I have to combat sometimes the wickedness that people will do to us. So he's on the cross, Sister Lisa. And he's combating the wickedness of the work of men. And how does he combat it? He looks up to the sky after looking down at them and he utters the words, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they do. It's so important for us to find not only hope but also have healing because we need to learn how to overcome guilt and the shame that comes with sin. It's so important for us to not only have hope but healing because we need to understand and, and, and to learn what it means to navigate the weight of the purpose that God has given to us to navigate what it means to be a husband, to navigate what it means to be a wife, to navigate what it means to be a son, to navigate what it means to be a brother, to navigate what it means to be a sister. But also we need to learn how to navigate and to appreciate hope and healing because we need to learn how to navigate, how to deal with people. I want to ask you to stand at this time. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna just make a request. 
yesterday we received a call um, from Sister Trish Felice that she needed prayers, the family needed prayers, because uh, something had happened. She didn't explain at, at that point. Something had happened to her mom, Sister Una Jordan. And um, so a couple of us, we, we rushed to the hospital, and we recognized really quickly what was going on. And uh, apparently, Sister Una had fallen down in, in the bathroom. Uh, the doctors have since concluded that she did have a stroke, a major stroke. She fell, and... She had fallen really hard to the extent that she uh, had hit the back of her head and she was experiencing brain, brain bleed. Um, and after, you know, doing a few tests and whatever, they concluded that there was nothing that they could do. And so they had moved her from the ER and they had put her in the ICU. She is in ICU right now. And of... Last night, as of last night, the family is deciding at 11 a.m. this morning. Sorry, I didn't have a picture to put up of Miss Una for those who may not be familiar with the name but with the face because that happens sometimes, right? But the family is determined that as of 11 a.m. this morning, they are going to take her off the, the machine. Which is to say... She's, you know. So I, I, have, I have two requests, really. Number one is that in this moment of prayer, that as a community, we take the opportunity to pray for that family. And number two, as classes... Right at 11 a.m. For however long it takes, it's up to you. It could be 30 seconds, it could be 10 seconds, it could be the rest of your class. I mean, really. Stop what you're doing. Just pray on behalf of the family. As, as you're praying on behalf of that family, I want you to also remember that we have a lot of people that have lost loved ones this year alone. We have a lot of people here that have lost loved ones these past couple of years. I feel like every single time we've been talking about this church going through a season. The truth is it really doesn't matter how many times it happened. It always hurts because these are people who have become, if not have been, close to us, Right? So I just want us to be in prayer, be in thought, and just hold each other close. This, this is, a, this is a, a young lady and sister, you know, that has, you, you would think I've known her all her life, but she just, she adopted me without me even knowing. And um, I just want to say on behalf of the family, they do send their love, and they're just asking for the prayers of the church and that we hold them in thought and mind at this time.